We all know about the risks Secret Service agents face every day in their mission to protect the life of the President of the United States. But here's one that agents and the public at large probably had never thought about until last year. As they were protecting then-President Trump and his family, more than 300 Secret Service agents and officers tested positive for COVID-19. Not surprising, perhaps, given that they were guarding a chief executive who repeatedly minimized the threat of the disease, downplayed mask wearing, staged mass indoor rallies, and ultimately got COVID himself. The real risk that Secret Service agents faced in the Trump era is just one of the eye-popping revelations in Carol Lennig's new book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Lennig is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The Washington Post, who has been chronicling the Secret Service, its triumphs, its mishaps, and its scandals for years. She paints a portrait of an agency that is understaffed, underworked, and beleaguered, compromised in its core mission that is essential to our democracy. We'll talk to Lennig about our new book on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, it is uh, really pretty striking when you think about the risks to their health and welfare that Secret Service agents were facing all last year uh, trying to protect the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And, you know, we all remember after Trump gets COVID and he is holed up at uh, Walter Reed and then he wants to show how he's recovering and um, uh, back at it, you know, he takes that drive in the limo. He still got COVID and there are those Secret Service agents that have to sit in the car with him and be around him at all times. Uh, you know, all these agents, you know, signed up knowing that someday they might have to take a bullet for the president, but they probably never imagined that they might get a uh, lethal disease trying yeah, to protect him. Because because he you just used them as political props. I mean, that was how he viewed them. Clearly. And, um, you know, and, and it's just kind of emblematic of the extent to which he politicized uh, the Secret Service more generally. I mean, you know, he hired a top Secret Service official to be his deputy chief of staff, um, as you know, we're going to hear about from Carol Lennig. He used them in that grotesque bit of theater by Trump when he used the Secret Service to clear out Lafayette Square uh, so that he could uh, hold his uh, Bible upside down in front of the the president's church. Um, Great moments in <laughs> in American history. Yeah, and, yes. and you know, and and so you know that obviously is uh, was eye popping. Um, you know that whole part of her book, as as you mentioned. On the other hand, the book is is really about a uh, a law enforcement agency um, that you know has rotted in a lot of ways and is full of of corruption and has lost a lot of its professionalism and deserves to have um, the kind of scrutiny that it's getting from Carol Lennig 
it's an agency that um, was very good for a long time at cultivating this image of professionalism, you know, just being super, these super cool secret service agents. Um, everyone remembers um, the movies back in the 80s and 90s uh, in the line of fire. I think one of them was. So, you know, like every other institution, you know, this one is showing that it has a lot of flaws. The problem is that with an institution like the Secret Service, um, there's not a lot of margin for error. Um, her there's book is no called, margin for error. The, the, the book is called Zero Fail uh, for a Reason. Right. And it's also incidentally consistently ranked one of the most miserable places to work in the federal government. So uh, not only it does the, the culture of the Secret Service run rife with a, a lot of hostility and and kind of poor planning, but it's it, it, every, everyone there feels miserable, if not also kind of maybe a little bit sick with COVID. Actually, I'm wondering right now if the United States Congress may be one of the most miserable places to be working right now in Washington, the uh, sort of poisonous atmosphere we're living in. And the rancor, especially in the House, uh, seems to be sort of off the charts. Uh, Victoria, you worked on the Hill for years on the Senate side, but, um, you know, the House was over. Always a bit more raucous, but I never can recall a period as uh, as divisive as we've got right now between the parties. And you know this um, this outlier member from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, seems to be able to stir the pot. Endlessly, uh, she famously this week uh, compared uh, the House rules about mask wearing to the Holocaust, prompting Minority Leader McCarthy to finally stand up and say something. Uh, he he said today, as we tape this, Marjorie is wrong in our intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. The Holocaust is the greatest atrocity committed in history. Uh, the fact that this needs to be stated today is deeply troubling. But, of course, um, he doesn't uh, propose any new sanctions on Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's still a Republican member of Congress. And and I happen to be on her email list, and here's her response after McCarthy made those comments. The media and Democrats and everyone feeding into it is allowing them to hide the truth, which is the disgusting anti-Semitism within the Democratic Party, Democrat Party, she says, at a time when the Socialist Democrats and the Jihad Squad are supporting terrorist Hamas and their supporters are attacking Jewish people on the streets of America, it's never been more important than now to stand up against forced vaccinations and mask mandates that the left is using to discriminate against Americans who refuse to comply. So uh, there she is sort of doubling down on her comparison. She certainly does have a talent for uh, attracting a lot of attention and uh, consequently for raking in a lot of uh, campaign contributions. You're, you're on her email list for, uh, I, I assume she's asking you for a little bit of money, Mike. Well, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, since I've never given a dime to any political candidate in my life, you know, exactly. Nice but that's, that's right. exactly what she's doing. And she's she's now become a top money raiser. Um, for, mm -hmm. for, uh, and her, she and her, I, I guess her new best friend slash ally in the house, Matt Gates, are quite the duo touring the United States right now, kind of spreading all sorts of noxious 
conspiracies and They're analogies. They're going around and, together, right? They just yeah. went to and they just went to Mesa, Arizona, where the <laughs> audit, audit is taking place. The America yeah. First Tour. Right. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, like we really need I mean, I'm, I guess I'm glad that McCarthy spoke out, but like we really need him to tell us that she's wrong <laughs> by saying this. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, look, I think it's you know, it's it's time for them, for the Republicans to do a little more than just put out statements. Uh, there There are things they can do. I mean, you know, they may not expel her from the party. Which, by uh, the way, Adam Kinzinger just called for it, for her to be expelled from the House Republican Congress. From, from a conference. Um, but they, even even if they, even if the Republicans, I mean, someone was just pointing this out, uh, that if the Republicans, not, not the Democrats, but if the Republicans on their own censured her, that would have some teeth. They would say that the party is unified in saying that this can't stand. Uh, but, they but they're not it. even willing to do that. And the reason is craven opportunistic politics, right? I mean, she is popular with a significant portion of the Trump base. And they are thinking about uh, midterm elections and they right. don't want to take on. She's popular Trump with Trump. Is, and she's popular is the with really Trump. And, you know, the, the one yeah. person that could maybe make a difference here is Donald Trump. I haven't seen uh, his office issuing any statements on on this yet. Maybe he will. Don't hold uh, your but breath. I'm not I'm not holding my I'm not holding my breath. Uh, she's certainly making kind of helping make life a, a misery for a lot of people up on the House. So I, I don't want to see the uh, the general. Uh, popularity of working there right now. It's just got to be the worst place to walk into the office every day. By the way, just to uh, conclude our email, because it really goes on and on. uh, Victoria, as I remember, you worked for a Democratic member of the United States Senate. Am I I correct on that? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, (laughs) She, Nothing nothing to hide here. Green says, the Democrats... So I guess that would include you, Victoria. I don't, are, are the party of division, hate, critical race theory, pure racism, discrimination, totalitarianism, socialism, globalism, gender destruction, BDS, defunding our police, and Antifa BLM terrorists? She missed communists. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're in good company there. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, before we get to uh, Carol uh, Kleiman, you had an update on our reporting from uh, Jana Winter um, yes, about the, the secret the postal IPOC, service program. Yes, the, the uh, Internet Covert Operations Program, the, the postal office's uh, uh, law enforcement arm, which has been monitoring uh protesters, uh, social media feeds, um, and as we discussed on the podcast last week, has uh, been using very controversial facial recognition um, technology um, to basically surveil people going to these protests. Um, We talked a lot about uh, the fact that the Democrats uh, were awfully quiet in in reaction to this, uh, to these revelations, and it was largely largely Republicans, including Matt Gates, uh, who was going after the Postal Service. Well, uh, that seems to be changing. Um, today, uh, Jana obtained a, a letter from the both the chair and the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee asking for the Inspector General of the Postal Service to investigate uh, what this ICOPS program really is. So this is the first public bipartisan action 
in response to what I think is a, a growing scandal um, at the post office. Um, we'll see what what comes of it. Um, but it's 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 a beginning. And once again, this is all because of Jana's reporting. Um, Congress did not know of the existence of this program until we reported it um, on Yahoo News. Can't emphasize that last point enough. If you wonder about the role that the press plays in our government, uh, this is a classic example, a secret program monitoring your social media content that uh, the United States Congress didn't know about until the press in this case, Yahoo News exposed it. So on that note, let's get to a reporter who has exposed quite a bit over the years. Um, Carol Lenick of The Washington Post. Let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Carol Lenig, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post, prolific book author who has a new tome out, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me again. So uh, fascinating book you've got out, which you've been, as I understand it, working on for years. Let's start with the subtitle, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. What is the fall that you're referring to there? When I started covering the Secret Service in 2012, it was because they were in the middle of like one of these, you know, crazy tail hook uh, kind of moral scandals, a humiliating series of misconduct cases involving Secret Service agents behaving like they were going on a presidential trip and turning it into a boys gone wild weekend. Um, But what I learned was in the course of meeting a lot of agents was actually the Secret Service had become kind of a paper tiger uh, that in that since sort of like in the in the months and years after 9-11, it had begun this slow slide of not of getting larger and larger mission and being stretched too thin, uh, people tired, not getting their training, a leadership culture that was um, covering up problems and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and a series of security failures that were also covered up. Um, and and luckily, these agents trusted me to tell their stories about what had happened behind that veil of, of secrecy. What were some of the uh, security failures you're referring to? One of them was uh, that, you know, a sort of mentally delusioned person uh, began shooting at the White House to try to kill President Obama um, and struck the executive mansion seven times. And the Secret Service was not aware that that had happened until cleaning staff for the White House discovered it and reported it to the White House usher. The the epic failure, a Keystone's cop moment in terms of serial failures to identify that someone was trying to kill the president and had almost you know succeeded in shooting through the window where his daughter and mother-in-law were relaxing. Uh, another was um, the tragic jumper incident in 2014, where somebody in, you know, an Iraq veteran with a limp, um, wearing plastic Crocs, carrying a knife, was able to move from a public sidewalk to inside the White House in 29 seconds, moving past, you know, 150 trained Secret Service agents and officers and personnel that protect 
you know, that 18 acre compound that's supposed to be the most secure in the world. So, um, Carol, you know, you have a sort of astonishing details about problems within the Secret Service here and there going way back. I think it was a revelation to like any everybody who who, who reads your book that uh, the Secret Service contingent who was protecting President Kennedy in Dallas in 1963, uh, they had been out that night um, at a place called The Cellar. Uh, drinking one of them until five in the morning, stumbling back home, and then of course we know we know the uh, tragic uh, conclusion of all of that. Um, but I want to. You mentioned 2012 is when you started um, to uh, cover this uh, story, and 2012 refers to Cartagena, Colombia, and I think uh, that's when I remember that uh, th- there was questions about whether there was something rotten inside the Secret Service. Um, was there a turning point um, for your story in terms of the kinds of problems that you reveal? Was it Cartagena? Tell us what happened then and how that might reflect the problems in in the, uh, the modern Secret Service. You know, I'm going to start with what sounds like a little bit of a parable. <laughs> the Secret Service, right, that name. There's a wonderful reason why things are secret. You know, we don't want to know about, we don't want the enemy to know about classified programs that keep the president safe, keep him from inhaling anthrax, keep him safe from a bomb blast in the bunker underneath and how he gets there, Um, keep him safe from a truck bomb when he's on a trip. We don't, we want those things to be secret. But the Secret Service, according to the agents and officers who entrusted me with this information, increasingly was using secrecy to cover up misconduct, uh, to cover up failings, to cover up anything that would sort of tarnish the brand or get their buddies in trouble. And their buddies often were very senior officials in the Secret Service. I mean, senior executives, one of whom was engaged in meeting foreign nationals uh, with his government car on work time you know, an assistant director of the Secret Service, one of whom was a top-level supervisor on President Obama's detail, who returned from a retirement party uh, driving drunk onto the White House compound, one of whom was, I mean, forgive me, the list is a little long, but what Cartagena, you know, what what, what Director Sullivan said and testified to Congress when he was asked to answer for this incredible series of, again, bacchanalia, wheels up, ring off culture of what happened in Cartagena, married men and unmarried men, hiring prostitutes, bringing them back to their room. What he testified to in Congress was, oh my gosh, this is so aberrant, so shocking, Shocking there is gambling in the casino. And the agents I talked to said, oh, oh, no, this happens all the time. This has happened many times in different versions, and it has been concealed. Uh, the Secret Service leadership and sub-leadership has been getting away kind of with murder because everybody thinks they're that button-down group of guys that that is you know beyond perfection. That culture made the rank and file feel like Things weren't as 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 important. Perfection wasn't as important as as their leadership had led them to believe, because they could see the sort of rotting corruption, professional corruption of their own management. You know, one of the arguments that you make in the book is that the Secret Service is under resourced; that its its budget is stretched thin. Um, 
But it's kind of hard to imagine that a, a service with a $2.2 billion budget is under-resourced. So why is that not enough? So I know it sounds like a lot of money. <laughs> and 7,000 Secret Service officers and technicians sounds like a lot of people. But people have to remember that while we all think that the number one job and maybe the only job the Secret Service has is making sure the president's awake and alive in the morning and alive when he goes to bed, um, there is so much more that we have put on the Secret Service's plate. They protect 42 other people. That includes the president's grandchildren, the vice president's stepchildren, a host of cabinet secretaries, and at least under Donald Trump's presidency, senior leaders who had no threat against them or their lives. Uh, the Treasury Secretary, you know, nobody was trying to kill the Treasury Secretary, but he had a full 24-7 detail. So that's huge. We also have assigned the Secret Service that Congress has the role of protecting large events that could be the target of terror. So they protect Super Bowls and Olympics. Um, they're responsible, of course, for those big events you all see, the State of the Union, the inauguration, but so many others that you don't see. For years, they've been responsible for protecting 170 foreign leaders, making sure they're alive when they get here and they're alive when they get on the plane and leave for the United Nations General Assembly. That happens every September in New York. Huge, huge job. On top of that, they investigate cyber crimes, financial crimes, hacking, uh, counterfeiting, their legacy responsibilities, which they've not given up. And so, you know, the cost of one fighter jet, $2.2 billion, is not covering the zero fail mission that this group has. So, um, Carol, you started this book um, during the Obama administration when some of the security lapses you refer to started. But... Um, you have quite a bit of absolutely fascinating details uh, uh, during the Trump years. And um, a couple leapt out at me. We all know that Secret Service uh, agents are supposed to take a bullet for the president in order to protect him. But one thing that they were asked to do, uh, particularly in the last year of Trump's presidency, was protect him during COVID when he was sort of denying the reality or minimizing the reality of COVID. And over 300 Secret Service agents tested positive for COVID during last year, during Trump's term. Uh, and how did that happen? And was that because they were being asked to protect a president who was not taking basic uh, precautions seriously? It's really depressing to me um, to remember uh, reporting on this in real time and then getting more details about it for the book. It was horrifying to realize how many agents were coming back from a rally in Tulsa or a rally in Arizona where they were duty bound to be in rooms indoors while COVID was raging in the states they were visiting, come home and, and realize that they could, without knowing it, infect their family uh, elder relative in their home, a child with a, you know, a compromising health condition. And that, that actually did happen. So two things that were happening uh, to restate during the spring, President Trump realizes that he's tanking in polls. He is going to, if the election were held, you know, in May or June, lose. And he believes that the only way to 
sort of revive his presidency and forgive me, his hold on the presidency is to go out and do what he did in MAGA rallies, which were very successful. But unfortunately, he creates super spreader events where he goes and he forces agents and officers, many, many officers who provide all the magnetometers, secure the perimeter of a rally event. He puts them all in harm's way. Now, I love that you mentioned take a bullet for the president, right? Because they will do that. But this risk was one that was so avoidable. You know, the president could have done rallies a million different ways, and not least of which he's televised live on on national television anytime he speaks or did. Uh, The second thing that was happening was a lot of Secret Service agents were either deciding on their own or being asked not to wear masks. In Bedminster, for example, a supervisor told me that senior leaders on the president's detail were going around and telling agents in Bedminster to take off their masks because, quote unquote, the president doesn't like to see it. Now, these are high-ranking Secret Service officials telling the rank and file, take off your masks. The president doesn't like to see it. Correct. And how did that go down among the rank and file agents who were asked to do that? Most of them complied. Um, Many of them were pretty upset. But, you know, the relationship between a president and the Secret Service is a pretty tense one, because while your job is to protect the office and not rally or root for the man, the two things are so intertwined. And it's almost like a military official to decline what you know, uh, the commander in chief allegedly wants is pretty hard. So that that's another thing that that Trump did or revealed. He certainly wasn't the first, but um, the your book talks about the kind of the politicization of the Secret Service. And as I say, Trump certainly wasn't the first to attempt to or to succeed in it. But at this stage now, at the end of four years, has the Secret Service become hopelessly politicized? It's such a good way you phrase that question because many agents and officers I spoke to, including alumni, um, were really disturbed at the line the Secret Service crossed during Trump's presidency. Um, They're supposed to be public servants above politics, beyond politics. They're not rooting for anybody. They're not cheering anything political. But in this administration, we just experienced the president had one of the most senior people in the Secret Service, the presidential detail leader, become a part temporarily assigned to his White House political team, a person who was arranging his rallies, staging that pretty horrific clearing of uh, Lafayette Square outside the White House for the president's sort of photo op to establish that he was a law and order president, filmed multiple times, videotaped um captured on photo. So also that he could promulgate that image. Secret Service agent uh, Tony Arnato is now the assistant director of the Secret Service back in in that job. I I have to break in here because that is such an astonishing thing. I I understand if someone leaves the Secret Service to go take a overtly political job. And and that's about as political as it gets. I mean, you know, uh, organizing, staging uh, the rallies. But then for him to be able to return to a leadership position at the Secret Service is just kind of mind-boggling. How do they explain that? And what kind of a precedent does that set? Well, your reaction, Dan, is exactly the reaction of so many sort of um, eminence grees in the in the Secret Service. They're like, wait a minute. No matter what their politics, they are hands up. 
just really disturbed by this, the crossover to a political operative back to the Secret Service. In the case of Mr. Honorado, he's very close friends and, and professional friends, colleagues with uh, the director, Jim Murray, who was the director chosen by President Trump at the recommendation of Tony Arnato. Um, So in a way, I guess you could say the director owes his job to the person that he just made the assistant director. Um, you, you also have a person who wasn't eligible for retirement. The retirement program is very generous in the Secret Service, as it is for an FBI agent. And um, nobody wants to give that up. So he's going back and getting his years eligible for retirement. It's been a concern for the Biden administration. And back to Victoria's question, you know, this politicization is something the services that, that the White House is going to have to pay attention to and not just be like, um, politely saying, thank you so much for protecting my life, because the agency needs a refresh on that issue. Uh, It needs a return to that moral high ground uh, where it wasn't used and deployed as a tool. Yet another astonishing point you make in the book is a subject we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, which is the sympathy that a lot of Secret Service agents had, not just for President Trump, but even for the rioters and insurrectionists at the Capitol on January 6th. And that that really leapt out at me. I'm just reading a passage now uh, from the book. Despite the heroism of their brothers in arms that day, some Secret Service personnel again took to social media in the days after January 6th, emphasizing with and defending the mission of the armed rioters who breached the Capitol. Um, that really stopped me and makes one wonder what's been the response of the Secret Service to having sympathizers with the insurrectionists within its ranks? The Secret Service refused to answer my questions about multiple screenshots uh, that I obtained from people inside the service who were, you know, horrified um, at that their colleagues were after January 6th, um, taking to social media to say, Um, You know, the Democrats are, you know, executing a coup. Biden is not the legitimate president. They took, you know, strange screeds about how liberals had stolen the election and had engaged in fraud to, to deny President Trump his rightful second term. Everyone's allowed to have their political opinions, the strong ones. But this group is supposed to check them at the door, just like journalists, you know, keep keep aware of them, keep alert to them, but don't deploy them in the course of your job. But the stakes are even the stakes are even higher here because these are the people who are sworn to protect. Hold on to answer the question, though. These folks, the Secret Service, its instinct is let's hope nobody notices or if there's a big problem, let's try to cover it up after the fact. And this service, in my case, refused to answer questions. Were they penalizing these people? Were they removing them from their jobs on the presidential protection division? You know, they just refused to answer those specific citing. I mean, this raises, I mean, even a broader question in my mind, are there rules, policies for federal law enforcement when it comes to uh, uh, expressing political opinions in social media where anybody can uh, read them. I mean, if you're an FBI agent where you're 
you know, going to be investigating cases and could be called to testify in all sorts of uh, courtroom uh, settings. I. Uh, can you just, you know, express whatever you think about matters in the world on social media? It depends. You don't you don't lose your First Amendment rights just because no, no, you're a government but, employee. But, I mean, I mean uh, but, you know, so I'll give you a comparison from the book, you guys. So a woman who was a very senior supervisor in the Secret Service during Donald Trump's candidacy and campaign for office. Um, pretty famously and infamously, she'd been watching, and I, I provide her sort of first-person account of what happened here from people around her and close to her in documents where she described this in an investigation. Her name is Carrie O'Grady. She was watching Trump campaign. She was watching the chaos and violence that he was encouraging and stoking. She was watching some of the racism that he was enabling and encouraging. And she said that she, Hatch Act be damned, you know, the act that says you're not supposed to advocate on your, on job time for a political party. She said, Hatch Act be damned. I would um, rather not take a bullet essentially for this person. Now she carefully phrased it, not that she wouldn't, she'd rather not. (laughs) The hell she caught when that became known was like standing in front of many lions as they roar and are about to eat you. Um, The hell she took from the Secret Service was, was really unbelievable. She was reinvestigated. The Secret Service initially looked into her claim on social media, asked her to take it down. Just This is just the senior leadership finding out about it. Asked her to take it down. She did. They said, great, you've been counseled. It's not the most flattering thing for you to do, but we're done. Closing the book on that. Except when it became public. When it became public, they hauled her into Washington to reinvestigate her for a number of technical violations because the alumni and the current agents were livid. How could she say such a thing about Donald Trump? Uh, who was then president when this information became public. The people who spoke up and wore MAGA hats, the people who said uh, President Trump was a great guy and Hillary Clinton was a joke, did not face that lion's roar. And um, the Secret Service handles these things differently based on the way it's generally leaning, which is generally to the right, like most law enforcement agencies. It's also an old boys club. And I wonder whether or not it's sort of, you know, whether or not the fact that it was a woman who was speaking out kind of uh, had a little bit of an impact, too. Yes. And the fact that she was saying something positive about Hillary Clinton, whom Secret Service agents almost universally despise, um, was another issue. Why is that? Why did Secret Service agents universally despise Hillary Clinton? I mean, some of it was timing and some of it was unfortunately her choices. And some of it was the agency's general DNA, alpha male. Um, women should be baking cookies and taking care of the kids and make and getting the laundry done for when I come home and get back on the plane and go on my trip uh, to protect the president. Um but on the first two points, taking it seriously, Hillary Clinton arrived as for as first lady, as the Secret Service was saying goodbye to a president they adored. Both Bushes, the Secret Service agents find, you know, just good hearted 
people and their families, wonderful people who treated the agents like family. And so there was a very special bond there that, um, and so when, when George Bush loses to Bill Clinton after only one term, Secret Service agents were universally rooting for him to stay. And Hillary Clinton, in her first uh, months in that office of First Lady, learns that there have been leaks about her private conversations with her husband. Most famously, there was one report that she'd thrown a lamp at her husband in an argument in the first, again, few months of their term. And she immediately blamed the Secret Service. We don't know if that's the case, but it sure seems like it's possible. And she banished them down to the lower floor of the White House. They'd always been near the residence, close enough in case there was an emergency. And she's like, out of my house. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet the Secret Service did cover for her husband quite a bit, um, as you document in the book. It's hard to tell what they were covering for or what they were allowing. Um Agents told me after the fact, you know, we all know about Monica Lewinsky. We all know about, um, you know, reports of his romantic liaisons. In the book, I report that as a candidate, uh, agents were pretty shocked because it's their first time meeting the Democratic nominee. They head to Little Rock and building upon your reporting, Mike Isikoff, (laughs) um, I learned that when he was jogging to the YMCA, Agents were told they weren't going to be allowed to go inside by their supervisors because he was meeting women there. Uh, And this was kind of a ruse uh, as the supervisors related to the agents. The agents are pissed off. They're not pissed off for the moral reasons. it's, It's not for the salacious reasons. They're pissed off because they've been training for months to protect somebody. And what's happening on the other side of the door is violating their protocol, which is I can't control what's on the other side of the door if I'm not there and if I haven't screened this woman. Yeah, I think you also point out with uh, Bill Clinton, he didn't want them around because he didn't want them in the uh, the television pictures because he didn't want to look like he was protected, that he, he could stand on his own two feet, which which was interesting. But I want to ask you uh, about um, the experience of the Secret Service during another uh, presidency, and that's President Obama, um, because uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, and depressing um, story as well. Um, when Obama is elected, the Secret Service uh, sees threats against the president against the president I- increase exponentially, I think you say, you know, four times. And race is clearly a significant factor, if not the most significant factor. Um, I-, I actually remember Eric Holder back then telling me that uh, the White House had instituted a regular meeting between him and, and Rahm Emanuel, like a once a week meeting only to talk about uh, this issue because they were so concerned. And obviously, it was very concerning to the leadership um, of the Secret Service. Um, but the story is more co- the story of race, Obama and the Secret Service is more complicated than that. Um, and racial issues were roiling the Secret Service itself. Tell us about about that. The Secret Service was a a little bit of a late adapter, uh, let's say, to diversity. Um, And it had a group of agents, black agents, who were pretty senior in the ranks, not in terms of title, but in terms of how long they'd been doing the job and the things that they were entrusted with. And they were beside themselves because for years they had been watching white agents that they had trained rise above them and be chosen for promotion. Even though the 
performance ratings of those white agents were lower than the black agents seeking the promotions. And this just happened year after year after year. And they finally got so sick of it, they, they sued their boss. They sued the agency. Now, a lot of federal agencies have been sued about racial discrimination, including the FBI. The Secret Service, its reaction was so bizarre. Directors publicly criticized the black agents who filed the suit called them all sorts of names. Black agents who filed the suit in their name were blackballed. Uh, They were not, um, they were scuffed off for assignments. People wouldn't agree to work with them. People who were under investigation, black agents who were considering joining the lawsuit, maybe a small technical violation, maybe a serious one. They were told that they could get away with the violation. They wouldn't come into any trouble if they just didn't join the black agent's lawsuit. Directors resisted turning over the discovery for years, years. They were finally threatened by a federal judge. And ultimately, um, it took President Obama's administration to settle that lawsuit. And Secretary Jay Johnson agreed to a, a very reasonable seeming payment, not exorbitant and not modest, to repay them the money they would have earned if they had gotten their rightful promotions. Yeah. And yet, Carol, it, I think it bears mentioning that um, in the the eight years uh, of the Obama presidency, with all of those threats um, and and just the sort of menacing threat of violence hanging over uh, President Obama for all of that time, there was no uh, successful assassination attempt, um, which suggests, um, and this is something we haven't really spoken about yet, that the Secret Service, with all of its problems does its job pretty well. And there has not been a uh, success, there obviously hasn't been a successful uh, assassination attempt since Ronald Reagan and and no assassination since uh, John F. Kennedy. Am I wrong to suggest that actually there's, uh, it, it, in a lot of ways, uh, they, they, are, they are professional and they are an excellent law enforcement agency? They are absolutely made up of excellent professionals. And I'm in awe of what they do and what they sacrifice. I couldn't I couldn't give up what they give up in their personal lives and their personal health. I mean, people have literally been like the 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 man, the best man for somebody in their wedding and they had to cancel. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of of commitment that, that secret service agents and officers have to their jobs. Officers for 7 years running when I was covering this agency, um, were you remember they're the people who really guard the the White House complex and also the vice president's residence and other facilities and also big events. They were losing every week one of their two days off and just coming into work, and it was you know burning them to the ground. Their personal commitment, writ large, I think this is me, has saved presidents. But all of the warning signs of potential catastrophe looming are the things they're worried about, right? If a guy can get from the public sidewalk to the White House in 29 seconds, if it had been a trained assassin, we've got a problem. If a person can get from, uh, stay on the White House grounds for 17 minutes undetected, if a person can shoot at the White House seven times, hit it with an assault rifle and is not discovered for five days, all of those things are a warning sign that it's a matter of time. So they are good, but they are, have also been very lucky. Correct, very lucky, and, and they're deter. And, and one person said it best to me, and it's been repeated to me several times since. 
we cannot be successful because the enemy failed. You know, we can't, we can't rely on and that. And hence the name of your, the title of your book, which is Zero Fail. Yes. There's no mistakes, right? There's no mistakes. So just because the enemy didn't, didn't luck out doesn't mean we're doing the job very well. And I think the thing that's most chilling to me and watching now the arc of the agency, you know, rebuilding itself after the tragedy of Kennedy, vindicated in all of the attacks you all have so smartly mentioned, you know, George Wallace paralyzed, didn't die. Uh, Reagan saved because of split second reactions. Gerald Ford saved twice because of split second reactions. Um, The rebuilt agency, awesome. Now it's been sliding downward. All of the warning signs that were happening before Kennedy was killed are happening now in a Mm -hmm. modern era Mm -hmm. in a kind of a different way. It's it the the institutional failures, not the not the individual failures that you point out in the book, the lack of strategic planning, the the kind of antipathy towards self-criticism or analysis, the kind of value loyalty over competence. It's cumulatively a, a pretty damning institutional portrait. So what is it going to actually take to fix it? So glad you asked. I'm, I'm going to channel a couple of people um, who can't be named, unfortunately. A senior Department of Homeland Security official who uh, reviewed all the failures for the last 20 years of the Secret Service sat down with me to sort of review page after page of after action report and said, the mission has to be redefined. The Secret Service has to prioritize and triage what's most important. And then after we decide what that mission is, which has to be smaller than it is today, we have to give them the tools to deliver that mission. They are, you know, 20 years behind on their computer systems, their perimeter technology, their foresight, their strategic mission, 20 years behind easily. And then again, this, this hydra-headed mission is only robbing Peter to pay Paul every other day. You know, the reason an intruder got up to the top floor of Michelle Obama's Sweet. while she was traveling in Los Angeles with her daughters, there weren't enough agents to, to guard the stairwells in the hotel. You know, that's because they were robbed from that assignment to deal with another. Um, you know, when Pence was in Arizona campaigning for Trump, some people fell, fell ill from COVID. A new detail had to be brought in. Pence's trip had to be delayed. And another trip they had to take people off of it for the president so that they could send them to Pence's trip. You just, that can't be the best America can provide. Um, we talked before about, you know, the successes of the Secret Service and, you know, in part to, due to their professionalism, in part due to luck. But we are in a really, uh, we're living in a very poisonous political atmosphere right now in the aftermath of January 6th and the big lies about the election and all that, in which there is a chunk of the public that does not believe that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. Uh, and this is coming at a time of, of, of increasing concern about domestic violent extremism and white supremacy and all that. What is your sense of the threat level right now and how the Secret Service assesses it. I'm really glad you asked that because uh, there is not an amazingly quantifiable way 
uh, to assess the threat at this very moment in comparison to, for example, Donald Trump and President Obama. But agents have said to me that they think because of domestic extremism, because of the stoked conspiracy theories about the legitimacy of the presidency. And I mean, keep in mind, a guy who shot successfully shot the White House was motivated by listening to an Alex Jones program, encouraging, again, the takeout of uh, that dangerous President Obama. They, these agents view Kamala Harris and Joe Biden uh, both together as a group in as much danger as President Obama. And, and I mean, are there steps that they are taking that go beyond what they did under President Trump? Well, I think we see one piece of their step in terms of how the inauguration unfolded. Um, the inauguration of Joseph Biden was the largest and most secure Secret Service operation ever in history. Uh, I mean, of course, it was aided by 15,000 National Guards troops. And it was 14 days after the January 6th insurrection, right? So, yes. And there were no crowds. <laughs> <laughs> the crowds. The crowds were walled off. Hey, um, while churning out this book, uh, you're also working on another book, a follow-up to the uh, terrific bestseller uh, that you co-authored, A Very Stable Genius, about, as I understand it, the last year of Donald Trump's presidency? Yes. My amazing Washington Post partner and colleague and book colleague, mm -hmm. Phil Rucker, and I are embarked on reporting what was absolutely the most consequential year of the Trump presidency. We did not envision that we would write another book, but 2020 turned out to be uh, something beyond our imagination. And it felt like it was an important piece of history to record for all time. Stay tuned. Yeah, well, uh, we will, and we will definitely want to have you back when that project is completed. But uh, for now, um, listeners can um, uh, get Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service by Carol Lennox. Carol, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was a really fun conversation. Cool. Cool.